0: Welcome to the Smart Driving Cars podcast. We do appreciate you taking the time. This edition is sponsored by the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, Symbol MOTO. For more information, head to MOTOETF.com. Technical support is provided by CARTS, the Corporation for Automated Road Transportation Safety, a 501c3 corporation. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the faculty chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi again, Alan. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. We have a great episode in store. From the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, research scientist, Alexandra Mueller is joining us. Hi, Alexandra.
1: Hello, thank you very much for having me.
0: Also with us is Michael Kraus. Professor Emeritus of Law at the George Mason University School of Law. Thank you for taking the time, Michael.
2: It's a pleasure to be with y'all. Nice to have both of you.
0: And he's down in South Carolina. That's where that y'all come from. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Alexandra, we're turning to you first. The IIHS today announced it is developing a new ratings program that evaluates the safeguards that vehicles with partial automation employ To help drivers stay focused on the road. You are spearheading this program. Give us the overview of what it's all about.
1: Sure. Well, partial driving automation systems are remarkable. And essentially how they work is they provide sustained steering support, speed, and following distance to support the driver for extended periods. But the problem is many of these systems are really sophisticated in their support, and they can sometimes give people the illusion that these systems can drive themselves, and the truth is they cannot. None of these systems are self-driving, and all of them require the driver to actively supervise the technology and be ready and able to intervene immediately should the technology encounter conditions that it's, for example, unable to handle, which functional testing research has shown, happens pretty often. In a nutshell, this program is about safety. It's meant to ensure that these systems are designed in ways that prevent drivers from misusing them. Now, from the existing literature, we identified categories of system safeguards that help drivers to fulfill their roles and responsibilities when using the technology um, by remaining active participants in the driving task. And another way of thinking about this program is that it sets minimum expectations about the ways designers can create these systems to help ensure drivers don't misuse them. Now, an important thing I wanna point out about this program is it doesn't prescribe design specifications up for these systems. And this is a very nascent field. So there is so much potential for innovation, for designers to come up with ingenious solutions to the user-related issues that are highlighted by these safeguard categories.
0: We've often talked about the role of the insurance industry here, and how it should really be behind all of these technologies. To leading, leading, safety.
3: leading. In fact, not just behind, but leading. Which is nice to see them lead. Go ahead, Fred.
0: Well, I was gonna. I was gonna say that. Yeah, yeah. What Go can ahead. the maybe insurance we'll retake industry...
3: it here? Sorry, Fred. I That's always right. interrupt, so we'll <laughs> fix this up. Sorry.
0: What What are your all thoughts right, about the role? What are your thoughts about the role the insurance industry can play here in leading or being the the chief proponent of this? Because obviously in the insurance industry's interest to make these vehicles much safer, right?
1: It's in everyone's interest to make these vehicles safer. And as you know, the insurance industry is not designing these systems. It's automakers that are designing these systems. And the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety has a long-standing history of evaluating vehicles, for example, with our crash worthiness programs and our uh, uh, auto brake, emergency braking AB programs. Um, And what this program represents is another opportunity to, again, help encourage safer designs. Um, And at the heart of this program, it's really about helping designers uh, to identify areas that really require safeguards to encourage people to use these systems safely. An important element in, in all of this is that there is no safety case for partially automated systems. There are safety cases for crash avoidance features that are often equipped with vehicles that have partially automated systems, but the partially automated systems themselves don't have safety cases yet. We're still collecting data. We're still trying to understand the nature of this topic, but they don't. There um, there is no safety case in the sense that these partially automated systems, having them in your vehicle make you safer overall. Um, so again, our role here is to help identify the safeguards around how to encourage proper system use. Um, and really, that's why we're here today talking the, to you.
0: The first set of ratings expected later this year. Uh, that's with correct. Safegu- you're going to rate them as being good, acceptable, marginal, or poor. And you're pushing for safety technology that ensures the driver's eyes stay on the road. So tell us more about that.
1: Well, not just eyes. The whole point about partially automated systems is that they are not self-driving. They require the driver to be an active supervisor or even participant in the driving tasks. So making sure that drivers are looking at the road is only the first step in a very complicated puzzle to keep the driver actively engaged in the driving task. So for example, when it comes to elements that the system needs to monitor about the driver, it's not just about where the driver is looking, but it's also making sure that the driver's hands, for example, are available. um, So that if the driver sees something has to intervene for whatever reason, that the driver is in fact able to. Because what happens if the driver has a cup of coffee in one hand and a cell phone or sandwich in the other hand sees that intervention is necessary, but they can't do anything.
0: It's really interesting because we're hearing from some of the big automakers, the ability that they're gonna be bringing in hands-free technology they're talking about. It's getting named that uh, and we know of Tesla saying full self-driving is what they have and are selling to people. So are you concerned about the names being used here?
1: That's a really good point. And actually, my colleague, Eric Teo, has done some research on this as well. And the naming of these systems absolutely has an effect in terms of what people begin to expect about what these systems can do right at the beginning, before you even get behind the wheel of a vehicle that's equipped with these systems, you hear about the names. You hear, and the names imply certain capabilities. So naming is certainly important, but so is the advertising that manufacturers use. If you watch the videos that are available on TV, for example, from automakers, some of those video commercials show uh, examples of these systems really implying that they're more autonomously capable than they really are. So again, truth in advertising matters as well as uh, the naming for these systems.
0: Alan, I know you're waiting, yeah, to, jump I'm, I'm waiting to jump in here. I'm waiting
3: to jump in here. Let us let me jump in here at this point. Are, are, are you going to rate them on their truth of advertising? no the purpose of yeah, this. that's program, unfortunate i guess that's unfortunate I, well I alan know, I we have it, to
1: start somewhere I, I, I we have under, to start I, somewhere know, no, and I right understand. now we want to focus on design characteristics to promote proper system use again yeah, this bit, is a multifaceted I, no, no. issue
3: no I, and and please don't take it you know I, I i absolutely applaud what you're doing here i of course I, I'd like to see you go farther. I think a lot of people would because I think you have some influence on on the industry. And in fact, you have an influence on on the buying public that buys these things because they buy insurance. And and, uh, even though uh, you don't uh, really affect insurance rates and so on necessarily or whatever, uh, there are some implications associated on that. And um, for years, I've been suggesting that insurance... uh, IIHS included uh, should be leading in all this. Uh, To me, all these systems, uh, as you uh, well said, uh, do not have a safety case associated with it. Some people originally said that there was safety associated with it. I think Fred and I many years ago said um, uh, bull, Uh, they don't. Uh, These things are about comfort and convenience. Uh, These things are about attributes and the use, and they're not really about safety. If one is dealing with safety, one has other ways to deal with safety. Anti-lock brakes deal with safety. Electronic stability control deals with safety. Uh, Automated emergency braking deals with safety. These things are systems that are on continuously or should be, my view, not yours, uh, should be on uh, available to the systems all the time why to keep us from misbehaving and as we use these darn things and keep me from, from hurting somebody, not only myself. And so those are different. Uh, with respect to these, uh, what, what we've called self-driving here, these are comfort and convenience systems. Uh, these are systems that allow it to be easier for me, feel more comfortable, have all those things associated with them and, and, and that's what they need to be. And unfortunately, uh, part of, uh, uh, we've had the Madmen promoting uh, automobiles since the Mad Men were real and having their three martini lunches uh, to existing today. Uh, you know, the 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 less than truth in advertising that exists in the auto industry is, oh, my goodness, it, it, it's not just with this you know, I think I cannot take my whatever up the Great Wall or down through some ravine and, and whatever and drive it through snow that's deeper than whatever. And so in some sense, um, yes, maybe it isn't the insurance industry that needs the rate on that, but somebody needs to be out there doing it. And I certainly applaud you for, for what you're doing. I, I must say also though, that, that not only do you need your hands available, you need your feet available. And I see that your feet aren't included in this. Uh, And I might even argue, and as I'll point out in my my smart driving cars uh, that that will come out, is that I'm not so sure that the way to to, uh, avoid a situation is necessarily for me to turn the wheel, because I flip the car and die, is maybe hit the brake uh, or accelerate. And so I need to have my feet somewhere and maybe what you should, I don't know, I know you're not, you're, you're a reputable entity, whereas, you know, me and Fred, I don't know what the hell we are. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, at, at some point, you've got to make sure that somebody's butt, the driver's butt is in the seat and, and, and maybe need to say explicitly here. Uh, all this sort of thoughts that have come out in the in, in previous years that you can hop in a backseat and sleep and so on with so called level blah, blah, blah that the SAE, who knows what, is just like, you know, who knows what. It's just like goofy. Come
1: but that's on. actually really interesting what you're saying right now about, for example, essentially at its core. What you're saying is you want drivers to be active participants in the driving Absolutely. task when they're supported I by think the technology. Can... Yeah. And that's the whole premise of this program. I know. And also with the program, for example, we include components about, for example, safety features, safeguards around drivers not being able to disable, for example, AEB. Emergency auto braking systems because adaptive cruise control doesn't have the same hazard braking case of capability and hazard avoidance capability as AEB. So why that's a, not? <laughs> but, that's a great what question. It, is, what what, an, great what engineer was designing this
3: thing? Well, I know why not. I'll tell you why not. It's because it's trivial for the vehicle to determine it's following another vehicle. Well, okay. and also
1: phantom and, braking. Phantom uh, braking is another issue where the uh, AEB response at high speeds might detect shadows and start activating the AEB response. And again, that is why the prioritization of ACC or adaptive cruise control response to AEB, but that is a problem for uh, designers to solve. Yeah, no, of course it is. is,
3: The designers, it's a designer's fault on that. Guess what? When I drive down the road, I don't know if you do it when you drive down the road, I get confused. I hit the brake maybe when I shouldn't have or when I thought somebody something was coming, I do it. My wife like goes nuts, but I do it. And so, so if this system that's helping us does it, relax. Okay, don't say I'm gonna turn it off because it might. I mean, who in their right mind designs a system like that? You know, Society of Automotive Engineers, come on, cut it out
1: it's complicated and these systems are remarkably sophisticated and again we're very much in a nascent period of this Field where we're starting, we're only beginning to come up with innovative solutions and the vehicle behavior, the system behavior. We're still very much learning how these systems ought to behave, how drivers ought to interact with them, how these systems should communicate to the drivers. And it's actually to that point that I want to point out that this program, this ratings program that we're developing, is going to be iterative. It has been developed based on what we know, it has been developed based on available data from the literature that's investigating how humans interact with vehicles and partially automated systems. But the more we know, the more fine-tuned, the more we can better identify and refine these safeguards. And so getting back to the point where you and I touched on earlier, you know, this is just the beginning. We had to start somewhere and where better than to make sure drivers are fulfilling their roles and responsibilities to use these systems properly. There are different ways that automakers can come up with innovative solutions and also ways for drivers to interact with these vehicles, to properly use them, to fulfill their roles as being active participants. Because again, these systems are just as you say, driver support, driver convenience features, but they're not self-driving.
3: I, I absolutely applaud you on that. And I think the important part of what you're saying is, this is absolutely the beginning. And everybody who's working on this better get a heck of a lot smarter. And I, I think I, I understood what you've written out there, that your top grade right now is good. That gives you the opportunity to get to excellence once these folks that are designing these things actually make them excellent. Because at good, the way they are now is not really, uh, might be good enough, but it isn't like the grading at Princeton now. I mean, if you don't have A triple pluses, grade point average of sixty two point eight, I mean, you're like a, a whatever. I mean, we just throw this stuff. Never mind, you don't want to go. But there.
1: that's actually <laughs> a really good point. Uh, in addition to that, though, we are not promoting the adoption of these systems. Because again, we are a safety-based organization. And as you said before, there is no safety case for these systems right now. What we are saying is that if automakers are going to offer these systems, again, here are some minimum expectations around the safe use or proper use of these systems in terms of safeguard categories that we are highlighting in this program.
3: There is a slight safety case in here, because if I'm more relaxed and I'm more comfortable in driving the vehicle, I think that one can show data that, in fact, I'm safer. Well, okay, we have maybe. yet
1: to see those That's, data. That's the problem. You can't well, yeah, because,
3: because Tesla hasn't released it to us, so that we can actually Tesla look it. Tesla is the not the
1: only with. automaker in this sphere. There are many no, automakers I, I know. that know offer that many of systems, yeah, and we but, need know, more data. We need I'll more transparency. We need more wide-scale data showing how I people agree. are using these systems. I and agree. once we have those data, then we can start making cases for benefits, for neutral, or disbenefits. But until we have those data we are it's it's inappropriate to guess about whether these systems make you safer because they make you more relaxed look at the Yersey- Dobson curve right that famous curve that shows you know it's a bell-shaped curve and depending on where you are in terms of uh, cognitive arousal or stress the better or worse your performance is and performance peaks at optimal, levels of, for example, cognitive arousal or or stress and so on. So again, there is such thing as being underloaded, underloaded cognitively, being too relaxed, Fatigue it's pretty clear that there's yeah, a... yeah. Now, in the
3: airline industry, it's all over the place. They talk about this, with but you respect cannot to pilot assume that the so lessons on. that yeah, I have learned in
1: aviation necessarily apply to the automotive
3: yeah, No, context. of course not.
2: Nothing, the nothing necessarily applies different. to anything. So, you know, let's not use the word necessarily. I think Alexandra is clearly right Wait, about here. this, Alan. I, there's clearly a trade off at some level between convenience and safety. Sure, just to give you trivial examples. We would all be safer if we wore full motorcycle helmets while driving our cars. We would be safer, but it would be much less convenient and comfortable. I drive a Mazda Miata with a six-speed manual. Let me tell you how many times I've ever had a coffee in my car while I'm driving. The answer is zero. I have to be active with both hands at the same time, otherwise the car won't drive. Automatic transmission is a huge convenience issue And it has allowed a lot of people to be distracted at the wheel. And a lot of people Uh, might not even have had the talent to drive under a manual transmission. They might not have gotten their license. They're now driving. So, I mean, I think we have to separate. Plus, let let me say in Alexander's defense, Consumer Reports already does um, a, a, a pretty darn good job. I'm a subscriber. Pretty darn good job of pointing out when there's false advertising or when there's puffery. I think IAHS should concentrate, which I think it does really well. I think let, let, let others uh, talk about the puffery.
1: But nevertheless, yeah, it, it does yeah, more no. attention. And I think that is important. And regulation and mandate obviously have a really important place here. And we haven't seen that happen yet in this sphere. Um, but it nevertheless remains really important. And there is a general desire for guidance. Um, and the designers are asking for guidance. Uh, consumer education, uh, consumer information programs. So this, you know, as we've been saying, this is a step forward. This is a step Hopefully in the right direction, but it's one step in a very very long journey.
3: Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. It's in the right direction. I don't think we have to we have to question that at all. Absolutely, it is it is in the right direction. It's it's desperately needed. Whether or not the uh, NHTSA should have done this or not done this, or New Jersey Department of Transportation or Motor Vehicle Commission or that of Princeton, New Jersey should have done it. Who knows? But Look, as, as I think Fred and I have been arguing for a long time, it's it's very nice to see the insurance industry because you, you have skin in the game here and you have a lot of skin in the game here. And uh, and absolutely, it is to your advantage and wonderfully so. Um, but um, it's great to have you do, doing this.
1: Well, and of
0: course, the only... go yeah, ahead. Go ahead, Alexandra.
1: Well, I was going to say, the only way we can keep moving forward is keep talking and sharing
0: information
1: across different areas, across different levels of expertise. Um, We need different insights, variable insights. We need different industries to be talking to each other because these are human issues really at its core. These are human issues in terms of how people use technology and how people interface with a, a vehicle, which is something that we often take for granted. So, again, you know, this is where these conversations are really valuable to start getting momentum moving.
3: Look, I mean, not only is it your life, it's at sake, it's somebody, it's people around you. I mean, cut it out.
0: Well, there's a case in point, Alan, that we're going to discuss in a minute. It demonstrates perhaps the need here, and we'll get to that in a second. First, this is a good time to remind you about our sponsor, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. To get more info, head to MOTOETF.com. On the website, check out the white paper. It's called the Smart Transportation Revolution. It's under the Insights and News tab. Some great information there that can help you make informed decisions about investing. You may know that ETFs can be a good way to spread risk with investments, maybe focus on a particular category of stocks, the website again is M-O-T-O-E-T-F We're back with more of Smart Driving Cars and our guests, Alexandra Mueller from the I-I-H-S and Michael Kraus, Professor Emeritus of Law at the George Mason University School of Law. Michael, let's get into a Los Angeles Times report by Haley Smith and Russ Mitchell this week headlined, a Tesla on autopilot killed two people in Gardena, is the driver guilty of manslaughter. The story pertains to vehicular manslaughter charges filed by prosecutors in Los Angeles County against 27-year-old Kevin George Aziz Riyadh. He was behind the wheel of a 2016 Tesla Model S, which was on autopilot just after midnight, December 29th, 2019. The car went through a red light and crashed into a Honda Civic. The driver, Gilberto Alcazar Lopez, and his passenger, Maria Guadalupe Nieves Lopez, were killed instantly. The article says experts believe it is the first felony prosecution in the US of a driver accused of causing a fatality while using a partially automated driver assist system. Your thoughts about the significance of this case.
2: Well, I have tried to find the exact facts of the case. I've not been able to go beyond that newspaper article that you just uh, summarized. Uh, so let me give you a series of hypotheticals that might or might not correspond to the facts of the case. And we'll, play, we'll tease out how uh, the criminal liability or civil liability might result from uh, these hypotheticals. Uh, so the worst possible case scenario uh, for the driver might be the following. Um, he decides that he wants to play with the with the, uh, with the uh, automatic uh, driving, and he turns it on, knowing that he's going into an intersection where this shouldn't be activated at all. That would be now. That would be exactly the equivalent of the following: somebody who turns on a cruise control in his normally uh, equipped car uh, when 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 there's dense traffic and then smashes into somebody while the car is on cruise control. No liability for the manufacturer there because the car is not defective. Manslaughter possibly, Uh, absolutely manslaughter for the uh, driver because he essentially had knowledge of the presence of people in the intersection and he had knowledge that a collision with those people was inevitable. He didn't have knowledge that he would kill them but that's what manslaughter is, uh, hurting somebody and then death resulting. So that would be manslaughter. Let's go to the other end. He's driving the car and doesn't even know that um, uh, uh, the the automatic driving feature is on. Uh, In fact, it shouldn't be on. It's only on because of a defect in the manufacture of this particular unit. Uh, In that case, civil liability, not criminal for Tesla, no liability for our driver. Now in between the two, Uh, gosh, you know, uh, this automatic driving has happened uh, six times in the last uh, three weeks. And he's phoned uh, the Tesla folks about it. And they've said, bring it in. But he said, oh, I'm a little bit busy. So I won't be able to bring it in for a couple more weeks. And he continues to drive it. He doesn't know that it's on now, but he knows it's been on often enough. That's a case of negligence. That would be civil liability for the driver, but no criminal liability unless he knew or reasonably should have known that it was going to come on at that time. So there's a whole array of possible um, consequences for the driver here. And there are other possibilities I haven't even mentioned, but I've just given you three points on a continuum. Um, and we need to know more. Uh, but, but you know, um, when, when the newspaper article said it's the first time uh, that there's been criminal prosecution uh, for an, uh, a driver equipped with a car that drives automatically, that's simply not true because we have had over the last 20, 30 years, several dozen people who stupidly put on cruise control. Now, cruise control is an automatic driving feature. It's a, it's a relatively primitive one compared to the ones we have, uh, the Tesla's putting out, but, uh, it is automatic driving. And so, yes, that, uh, we can analogize that's what law does, right? We take new cases and we analogize to the principles, uh, revealed by older cases. And, um, uh, so so the, so the fate of this driver, so, so why have they charged him? Maybe, oh, and maybe he was drunk. Maybe the negligence was uh, so egregious because he was drunk that he, could, that he should have. Now that would be a case of involuntary manslaughter. Uh, um, uh, gross negligence leading to death uh, in most states is a case of involuntary manslaughter. Voluntary manslaughter would be him activating the automatic driving uh, just on a lark to see, to, uh, for fun to see uh, whether there'd be an accident or not that would be voluntary manslaughter so there's a whole array. and I suppose of course that if he saw somebody in the intersection if he saw this poor couple in the Honda and decided that he wanted to, to see whether Honda could survive the uh, a head-on collision uh, that would be murder that would be second-degree murder so um, you know we, we could we we could imagine a whole array of possibilities and I just don't know which one applies here.
3: Well, Michael, uh, thank you so very much for that, because I certainly learned a lot, which I of course like to learn stuff on these things. Um, I, I call the cruise control that you um, that you were for, for referring to as stupid cruise control, as opposed to intelligent cruise control, the cruise control that controls only the accelerator, not the accelerator and the brake. And and are, are you familiar with the case law on that as to roughly how many times that I'd, I'd never looked it up i guess you know i could do a google search or i could ask alexa or somebody uh, are you are you could you maybe feel with the audience
2: i mean i'm 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 intrigued yes vanishingly few i mean the problem for the police of course is typically they don't have a witness who is in the car who will testify that the accused deliberately put on cruise control just to see what would happen or put on cruise control at the wrong time Uh, so what we have is the car was in cruise control and we have perhaps the driver saying, I didn't put it on cruise control. I don't know what happened. The car accelerated uh, unilaterally. The car accelerated without me even stepping on the gas. I have no idea what happened. And then uh, he and his lawyer going back against the uh, manufacturer of the vehicle for a design defect or a manufacturing defect. Um, So what you need for this to work is you need a passenger in the car willing to testify against the driver of the car. Usually the passenger in the car is a friend or a relative of the driver in the car. So you don't often get this happening. Um, and so there are vanishingly few cases, but as a matter of legal theory, it's yeah. not a complicated case, it's a straightforward right. case. Well, we, right. don't, yeah. we
0: don't know about the data available, right? Because this is a yeah. Tesla. And yeah, obviously, well, yeah. there's a lot of data there. There's cameras there, but
3: yeah, let, let, let's wait on that. But I think, with with respect to, to stupid grids control, I'm not even sure if the recording devices existed in the cars of that genre, in past years. That the data would actually even be there that recorded that the darn thing is on. I'm,
2: I don't know. I, I I'd have to
3: check on that. Let I mean, me give you another example. Yeah, uh, yeah.
2: Let's say you've got uh your 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 the idiot light that says your brakes. Your brakes aren't working, is working yeah. that idiot light is working appropriately. It comes on, and you now know that you've got no brakes. You've yeah. got no brakes, and you decide nonetheless to drive your car. Okay. You I drive did that. thinking, I'm a good enough driver, I can just use the steering. Did I can that. avoid. I can avoid, it and I'll use my handbrake. If I really need to stop, I'll use my handbrake. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the handbrake is not as effective as the uh, disc, as four. Disc. <laughs> one handbrake is not no, as effective no. as four disc yeah, brakes. No, no, um, true, true. Uh, yeah. Death results. Yeah. Easy case. Easy case for, for, uh, uh, for uh, involuntary manslaughter at the least okay and
3: and uh, do you know of prosecutions along those lines or i don't know i mean I, I, again uh, this is all very interesting to me i, I hope my our audience too and I, alexandra i hope to you too I oh mean, i find I, this
1: very interesting so Mike, i mean i your,
3: didn't know this thank you great go yeah. ahead yeah no it's wonderful yeah, i, I think good. yeah we do have and I, I in my classes i sort of discuss the analog break issues and, and how that was litigated in its early form. Look, I tried to push the brake to the floor and it, w- it, you know, it, it just wouldn't go on. Uh, but in fact, you know, to me, th- that automated system, that automated system goes against my natural tendencies. And that's why I think it's so ingenious about that automated system. It's anti what I'm trying to do. I am trying to push the sucker to the floor and it says, yo, Alan, hey, that's not the way to use brakes. I know how to do it better than you. I'm taking over and going to do it. And I think in the original, in the early part of, of that technology, there was a lot of litigation associated with well, the brakes didn't work well where the technology finally proved that, hey, it knew how to do it better than I knew how to do it and therefore survived those, those um, you know uh, defect uh, sort of assertions by, by the driver. I think, in a sense, um, um, uh, uh, electronic stability control is the same genre. You know, I go around a curve too fast. And the darn electro uh, 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 the stability system says, hey, Alan, cool it. You don't know what you're doing here. I'm going to tap the brakes. I'm going to hit the... Do, 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 do. I'm going to save your butt. And, and basically yanks me out of that control. And to me, that was always the argument for the, for the automated emergency braking systems, is that, look, you don't know what you're doing. We're taking over. We're going to do crash avoidance as opposed to just crash mitigation where we absorb a little something and low energy and whatever to actually, you know, save your
2: butt because you don't know what you're doing. And, uh, comments, give Michael? It, give or... it, I should say, given the charge in the LA case, the fact that they they, 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 they they place such a serious criminal charge on the driver, one might suspect from that, oh, they must know something. Maybe they smelled liquor on his breath. Maybe he was you know, maybe he was, they, they, they figure he activated the automatic system uh, because of his drunken stupor. That's possible. But let me tell you as a, and I, I'm a professor, of pro, I was a professor yeah. of products liability. I'm retired now, but a professor of products liability and of legal ethics. And yeah. it, in many jurisdictions, they always overcharge. Uh, it's not ethical in my opinion, but they overcharge criminally to get them to plead down to uh, a lesser charge, so it, it's possible that it, it, my my daughter is a federal prosecutor, and I can tell you she never does this. It's an ethical matter. It's an ethical matter, but, but but you know, um, so 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 they may have overcharged, and maybe uh, this is just going to be reckless driving, and maybe it's just going to be negligent driving, and maybe it's not going to be anything at all, and maybe they charged them just to make, maybe the DA just wants to make headlines across the country. One doesn't know.
3: Well, to, to me, if I, uh, you know, hey, I don't know any more than you know about this and what I've read about, the, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the LA Times and another reporting on this thing. Uh, Tesla does record when autopilot is on or off. Okay, they know the data has it in there when it's turned on. Now, whether or not these folks can go get it out of Tesla and and find it, they could assume they can, that they can't turn it on. That version of autopilot, I believe, did not recognize traffic lights, stop signs. It was, you know, it was essentially intelligent cruise control which means that as long as the thing thinks that it's following a vehicle, as we discussed earlier, it knows how to be intelligent, but, If there's a stopped entity or an entity that only has cross velocity, not lateral velocity difference, it's recognized as a stationary object. And I believe in all that code, although, hey, nobody's told me I was wrong. And I've said it so many times they should have told me I was wrong. I believe that the code is written such that these things are disregarded explicitly in the code. Why? for the reasons that were just stated earlier. Oh, the car might turn, put on the brakes inadvertently because an overpass, it couldn't tell it was an overpass, it thought it was a station, and we can't have that. My goodness, people would go nuts, they'd return the car. We can't have that. So explicitly in the code, it's written, sure. forget about it. Well, and that it, is, it, come on, we gotta get a lot smarter.
2: Ahead. Okay. Okay. Alexander, and, and Alexander, you Tesla. can
3: claim that you, know, you you don't attest to what I say. You're not part of what, whatever. But, you know,
2: I, I think it's in there. The, Go ahead. Uh, Tesla will reveal what happened to that car if they know it, because Tesla will be, if it hasn't already been earlier <laughs> today, sued civilly by uh, by the estates of the victims. for yeah, a That is the car.
0: case, uh, Michael. They the, already the filed the victim's family. There has to have... be. I mean, it's a no yeah, brainer.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Tesla's it's pockets are much deeper. Tesla's insurance limits are, are, are I'm sure, <laughs> higher than the insurance limits of the driver of the car. So the the suit the, the, the victim is going to have a different theory of the case than the prosecution does. The prosecution seems to think it was the driver's fault, but the victim is going to try to make the case. The estates of the victim uh, are going to try to make the case that it was te- that that Tesla defectively designed this intelligent. What Alan appropriately calls an intelligent cruise control—that they shouldn't have designed it that way because it's unreasonably dangerous. The those are buzzwords in the law. Well, might might we learn more ticket. from
0: the civil suit? From the suit, that's the civil
2: suit. That'll be the civil suit, which is what interests. Uh, that's what interests the decedents uh, states. That the criminal prosecution doesn't help the decedents in any way. It vindicates the state's desire to maintain law and order, but it doesn't help the decedents in any way, shape or form. And even if the decedents are found, sorry, even if the accused is found um, uh, guilty, that doesn't determine whether Tesla will also be found liable. Those are two utterly distinct uh, cases. One doesn't follow in the footsteps of the other. Uh, It's like um, um, speaking two different languages.
3: And Michael, along those lines, I I would suspect, tell me if you would agree, that, that the reason why Tesla is sitting there collecting data on this stuff is to protect themselves is to say, yes, here's the data, here's when it's used, here's what's in our, here's what's in our manual, it's da da de, da 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 and so on, you know. Here's uh, how
2: many billions of miles has been driven with this on, yeah, yeah, here's and how all many that. accidents, how many precious few accidents there have been, because that goes to whether it's unreasonably dangerous. Right, every right. Car, every car in the world that's ever been made is dangerous. As I used to tell my kids when they were going for their driver's license, it's a 4000 pound bomb that you are driving. So yeah. every car is yeah. dangerous, but whether yeah. it's unreasonably dangerous will depend in, in no small part on how often and how, uh, how how severe the how often injuries occur and how severe those injuries are. So that's certainly one reason. I'm sure another reason why te- Tesla is accumulating the data is for a continual improvement. So it'll it'll, sure. it'll be able sure. to know is, is an improvement that we are contemplating worth the candle? Does the cost Uh, is the cost uh, merited by uh, decreased accidents. So uh, several reasons, yeah.
0: Interesting. Alexandra, getting back to to you, the IIHS and what you're doing there. The press release today uh, said, no technology can determine whether someone's mind is focused on driving. However, technology can monitor a person's gaze, head posture, hand position, to ensure that they're consistent uh, with someone who is actively engaged in driving. Pretty important distinctions you're making there, right?
1: Yes, and I mean, that again speaks to why we've created multiple categories. Um, They're all part of a complex puzzle, essentially. And the reason why we've created these multiple categories is that there is no one solution to dealing with these human issues related to proper system or improper system use. Um, the whole point of having categories for around what's monitored about the driver, how the system communicates to the driver, what happens when the driver is non-compliant to those communications, what does the system do? What countermeasures are available? But other, other aspects as well, how do you encourage the driver to participate? And that we um one of the safeguard categories has to do with the concept of shared control How do you have the driver be encouraged to participate so that they're not penalized whenever they want to provide an intervention or when they simply want to share uh, in the driving task itself, even though they're being supported by, and this speaks to Alan's point earlier about the system making the driving task easier, but not coming at a cost where the driver feels like they have to give up control. It's one or the other. Instead, what shared control does is it says it's not binary and that the driver should be participating. So again, proactive solutions in these safeguard categories, as well as um, highlighting the importance of limiting other types of automation capability in a partially automated system. When it, the functional capability of some of these systems, for example, with adaptive cruise controls auto resume capability. When the vehicle is following another vehicle and let's say in a traffic jam situation, adaptive cruise control brings the vehicle to a stop. And from that stop, suddenly the lead vehicle begins to move again and the adaptive cruise control automatically engages and resumes speed. There have to be limits on how it resumes and if it resumes at all. What happens if the driver is not looking ahead? what then? If the, if the system just automatically resumes, and let's face it, in traffic jams, we see weird things happen. Sometimes pedestrians are in the road, for example, workers. Sometimes a vehicle wants to cut in, and sometimes the adaptive cruise control sensors don't respond to it. The driver should be looking at the road before the adaptive cruise control auto resumes, because if something goes wrong, the driver is looking and can intervene if it's necessary, but also the concept of having it, for example, a timeout. These systems should not be able to auto resume indefinitely because the longer a vehicle is at a standstill, not supporting the driver, the more likely driver driver's going to forget that the system's even on and available to auto resume at the moment. So again, imposing limits of the functional capabilities that are not unreasonable, that the driver is still encouraged to participate and still is communicated in the system design that the driver still has that responsibility of whatever the system does
3: yeah those are all very important because because in a sense uh, you know this is sort of a uh, again i like to look at it as comfort and convenience helpers while there are other systems that basically sit there and monitor you and and decide when you're not performing well and says, move out of the way, we're taking over. Okay. Which the two examples I always love to give is the analog brakes and the electronic cruise control, uh, electronic stability control. You know, those are two systems. And to me, I think the the automated emergency braking systems should be part of that. And in fact, the automated emergency braking system should be built into the intelligent cruise control, as opposed to saying intelligent cruise control that works as long as there isn't a a stationary object ahead of me. I'm coming over a crest of a hill, and there's a, a, a whole host of cars stopped behind a, a traffic light, I come over the head of the hill, and that that is a stationary object, and these darn things with intelligent cruise control will plow in the into the tail end of them. That is, how can you design systems like that? Come on, cut it out. Or wait until it's 1.6 seconds before a collision and then all hell breaks loose. They tighten up, they make sure the engine doesn't uh, chop your legs off. Da-da-dee-da-da-da. Da, 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 da. Why did you wait till 1.6 seconds? Slow down, relax. But
1: also, that I, mean, is, I, I hate,
3: I mean, you know, they could be doing that right now.
1: Well, the reason why, again, why we have so many different categories in this program <laughs> is driver monitoring isn't enough. Yeah. Right. Obviously, yeah. we're saying you you should monitor multiple Absolutely. aspects of the driver because the more data you have converging on a signal, the more accurate and reliable that signal is going to be. Right. Again, as Fred said before. These are monitoring what the driver's hands are doing, monitor where the driver is looking, posture, all this information. They are proxy indicators of what is likely going on in the driver's head, but we have no way of knowing what's actually going in the driver's mind. We have no way of knowing exactly what the driver is attending to. So driver monitoring is helpful for uh, for the system detecting if the driver is doing what is operationally required from the driver, but it's not enough. The system's methods of communication in response to what's being monitored about the driver, if the driver starts doing something that the that the system detects is inappropriate, the system has to respond immediately. But also the system has to have countermeasures for if the driver does not respond to the system's communication. But all of that is reactive in nature, and there have to be proactive ways of ensuring that drivers understand what their role and responsibility is, as well as what the system limits are. And that's where, again, talking about the automated functionalities above and beyond standard longitudinal and lateral support, If you start to over, if with the incredibly sophisticated functionalities that we're seeing added to conventional uh, partially automated uh, support systems, it starts becoming really difficult for drivers to understand what those system limits actually are. If the system is making decisions on its own to change lanes, it becomes very difficult for a driver to understand that even though the system is making those decisions on its own, it is not actually self-driving. And that the responsibility still falls on the driver to be aware of what is happening around the vehicle and intervene if it is not a safe maneuver to perform. So again, this is where the safeguards are coming in to impose minimum expectations about safe or Minimum expectations around how these systems can be designed to reinforce what the driver's roles and responsibilities are, and also to reinforce implicitly to the driver about what those limits are as well, about how the system can and cannot perform. Well,
3: Any may, thoughts? May, may, maybe, the, maybe the other thing that we also need in here is maybe consumer reports or somebody or, or the good housekeeping seal of approval or somebody come in there and say, look, uh, here, here's the way you're advertising this stuff, and come on. And here's the way you're calling this stuff, and say, hey, come on. And you're you're misrepresenting all of this. And and why don't you start act, acting responsibly as opposed to just trying to reach into our pockets and take our money and get us to buy this stuff when it actually doesn't do what the heck you know you're implying that it can do. You know somebody needs to do that. It's probably not I I H S. It's probably I don't know. Maybe, Fred, CR, maybe you CR and I should it. do a startup. I don't know. What the
2: hell? I Whatever. Go. It's Michael. When, when Consumer Reports comes out with the, uh, with its, when Consumer Reports ruled that Tesla was, had the lowest quality of any vehicle sold in the United States, uh, <laughs> believe me, that affected the market and Tesla uh, listened and Tesla uh, reacted. So I think I mean the, the markets are not as broken as, as as all that. We do have these institutions that that, that do work in that area. IHS does a. And let, let me just say one more thing. In, in addition to how the uh, device works, the autopilot works, or it's where is it placed in the car? The ergonomics there are very important how possible is it to activate it by accident because you are very close to another button for something else? And there are all sorts of engineers who do nothing but um, uh, test with audiences of different ages, uh, ethnic groups, um, language uh, uh, bases to see uh, how likely it is for them to activate something erroneously, to push on one button and hit the next button Um, all the rest, because um, uh, there are times when you shouldn't even be using cruise control at all, obviously. And if you're using it by accident when you didn't know you were using it, then um, if, if, if you thought you were turning your blinker on but you were pushing something very different than turning your blinker on, then we've got a design defect issue not a manufacturing defect, but a design defect. So yeah, that's, this is all a big part of products liability law. They do listen to that and they, and and liability does actually influence the way these uh, automakers uh, design their cars.
3: Yeah. So and it's not,
2: it's, it's tough ahead. to design a vehicle.
3: I mean, it is, right. you know, you can't just come out and say, Hey, yo, I'm, oh, I'm man. designing one. I mean, we look at the folks in the automated vehicle end that, that have tried, I mean, Waymo went out there and tried to build a Firefly and they gave that, that sucker up. Zooks was out there with its own vehicle. They gave that up local motors, just last week saying oh you know 3d printing of vehicles uh, not necessarily so easy um, whatever. So yeah it's a tough it's a, it's a big, it's a tough business and it requires you know cooperation and, and contributions by everybody. This is not easy. Uh, we're not suggesting that it is easy. We just I, I, we just like to have people you know continue to work hard and, and continue to improve it.
0: Real quick, Alexandra, another component of this is the responsibility of the car makers, maybe the dealerships, to educate the buyer what these systems are, what they can and can't do. We've done stories about this before, Alan, that uh, they don't take it seriously very often. Salespeople want you out the door after you've you know, signed on the bottom line. They're so, salespeople. So, I mean, well, but... Tell us, tell us what your thoughts are, because these these systems are sophisticated. You can't tell me here's the manual. See you later.
1: Absolutely not. And I know Michael's going to have some thoughts on these, but um, there are major hurdles when it comes to being able to even reach consumers with appropriate information that actually improves their understanding and encourages proper system use. And even among the people who have proper understanding about these systems, Even those people will still struggle when they're supported to such a degree by this partial automation that it becomes difficult for any human being over time to sustain the necessary attention to consistently monitor these vehicles uh, and intervene when something goes wrong. Human beings are just really bad (laughs) at. Supervising passively and this is again where the active participation is so important and another issue is that people often become complacent, even when they know better. People still become complacent and to your point about relying on dealership sales staff and so on that's hugely challenging because sales team first and foremost have a very high turnover. Secondly, they also tend to not have the necessary information or means to educate their consumers. And also another problem, if you rely on education to be the mechanism of ensuring that people are using the technology correctly, there will always be people who will get behind the wheel of a vehicle that haven't had the training. What do you do about those people to make sure they don't put themselves and other people at risk? And the biggest issue on this topic of education and training is that no one really even knows how to educate and train consumers on vehicle technologies, especially partially automated technologies that vary so much between automakers in terms of activation sequences, methods of communication, uh, idiosyncratic system behavior and driver requirements. And people themselves are so variable. They're so different in, types of, in terms of the type and degree of information that they need to effectively understand what the system limits are and how to properly use these systems but that means that there's no one size that fits all in terms of training or education uh, in, or a solution that will work for everyone.
2: Alexandra so. is so right about this. Uh, I just think of rental cars. Everybody mm-hmm. on this podcast yeah. has rented cars. You go up to it, you, you, you give them your driver's license and your credit card, they give you a key. You're not, I think if you went into the car and spent three hours reading the manual, uh, the folks uh, there waiting to for you to leave the parking lot would be a little bit upset. They and Never mind, mind that the manual the themselves are often go. uninterpretable, and, these are car- and you've never driven necessarily a car this make before. You yep. don't know on which side the gas tank is, let alone where all the different uh, uh, where all the different uh, uh, safety devices are. This is an incredible challenge, and uh, meeting that challenge is going is, is an extremely hard thing to do. The very first car that I ever owned when I was, uh, I think 17 years old, was a Dodge Dart. And I remember when I bought it, the driver's manual, the owner's manual was 60 pages long. A neighbor just showed me the owner's manual for his brand new Volvo, 600 pages long. Uh, They don't even make it in print anymore. They They give you a disc and they ask you to look at it on your computer because it won't fit in the glove compartment anymore. Uh, it's too big it's too complex it's way more complex than before
1: it is and I think Fred what you're asking here is for a solution and I think Michael tell me if you agree but I think the simplest but by no means easiest it's not I I think we all agree that this is a very difficult challenge but the solution to this problem is to design these systems from the get-go to be as intuitive and easy to use as possible, that have these built-in safeguards that are created to minimize the possibility for misuse. In other words, make them foolproof.
2: The only thing I would add is that one hopes that a custom will evolve soon so that any given safety device becomes identical from one brand to another. Many people have more than one car. They drive more than one car. Like I said, there are rental cars. And you need to uniformize, we need to get rid of the VHS versus Betamax kind of type of thing and coalesce around one kind of design eventually. And I think that, that the markets do work themselves out that way. I'm not confident that NHTSA is best placed to do that. I think that the market tends to work as well or better than a regulator who isn't necessarily uh, as much of an expert on cars. Michael,
3: along, along those lines, we've, Fred and I have argued uh, on this program that that with respect to safety not only with driverless vehicles but with self-driving or partially automated delivery vehicles the industry should be cooperating not competing we, it should have antitrust immunity in these in these areas, uh, uh, because in fact uh, the cooperation one bad apple ruins the whole thing. The whole you know lift the you know rise of the ocean lifts all boats. All the other cliches associated with that that, that with respect to safety, they really should be cooperating. Colluding, doing all the bad, you know, capitalistic things that, that are associated with those kinds of things,
2: uh, because because safety, it, it's in everybody's better best interest. I, 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 I agree with that. I'll just say it's. I hate to say this; it it just makes me realize how old I am. But it's like many things in life; it's complicated. The problem yeah, of course. Is when you when you allow them to collude about safety. How do you know they're not colluding about other things at the same time that they're meeting to collude about safety? Adam Smith talked about this at great length. Get, uh, manif- get sellers together. First thing they're gonna to try to do is limit. By the way, COVID has allowed coalescence and collusion about these certain yeah, about, yeah, no, about yeah, these yeah. things too so no. it, it's it's just I wish I had a magic wand solution but it's complicated it, it's enormous,
3: it's enormously complicated and and of course one wants the one one wants to do all these things with respect to uh, to uh, renting vehicles, uh, I use Uber, Lyft now, I'm never gonna rent a car again in mean, my life. And two, the last recently I, I was in an airport. I did need to rent a car. They offered me an electric vehicle. I don't drive a Tesla. I don't drive an electric vehicle. I said, even though that's the cheapest one and I'm the cheapest guy you ever saw, you know? I, I didn't take it because I said, holy hell, I just don't know how the hell to deal with it, huh? whatever, that's a, And I don't want to learn, not until I buy one or something like that. I mean, absolutely. The the variabilities in these things, yes, um, it's nice to have some competition there and so on in the features. But again, when it comes to safety, boy, we, we really do have to find a way to cooperate. Um, anyway, maybe that's being too goody two-shoes about this and whatever, but... Um,
0: Well, Alan, there are other headlines in the Smart Driving Cars newsletter that we're not going to get to with this. We've got so much great discussion here. We're just going to steer people to to read the latest edition of Smart Driving Cars, more great content there. But we want to thank Alexandra and Michael for taking the time with us for truly a great and and I think very important discussion. Thank you so much. Most welcome.
2: Yeah,
3: no, really appreciate it. I mean, this—I I learned a lot. So, so uh, no, this has been very good. And thank you to, for all the efforts that both of you are making, and certainly for what IIHS is doing in this in this area. and, yep. and um, you good know, work. absolutely um, right on. Yep.
1: thank you all very much.
0: Yep. thank you to our sponsor, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF. The ticker symbol for the ETF is MOTO. More information is available at MOTOETF.com. Technical support is provided by CARTS, the Corporation for Automated Road Transportation Safety, a 501c3 corporation. You can find us at smartdrivingcar.com, also on Anchor FM, Spotify, TuneIn, Apple, Google, you name it, wherever you get your podcasts from. Smart speakers can play us, too. You can find my tech reports at textination.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with Alan Kornhauser. Thank you for listening or watching. Stay safe.
3: Thank
0: you.